The tiny book of the prophet Joel contains one of the most amazing promises that we can find in Scripture. Joel promises that in the future for God's people, God's Spirit would be poured out on all who call on the name of the Lord for salvation. And that, my friends, is a total game changer in human history. In our time together this morning, I want to show you not only why it's such a game changer, but to invite you to experience the Spirit of God in a more personal and profound way in your own life. All that from Joel? Yep, that's what we're hoping for. So let me just give you a little background, and then we'll set up the passage at the end of chapter 2, which contains just this incredible promise. Um, no one knows exactly the time that Joel, the son of Penuel, lived and ministered. Some people think that it happened back in the 800s BC during the time of Judah uh, under one of the kings there, that he was a contemporary of other prophets like Amos in that particular time. Uh, but most people think that he actually is a, is, a, is, a, um, is a contemporary of Haggai and Zechariah after the time of the exile and the time of the return. And and for a couple reasons. One is that he is incredibly familiar with the work of a lot of the other prophets. Uh, he, he quotes or, or gives a, allusion to works of Isaiah and Zephaniah and, and some of the promises they made. He also seems very familiar with the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and even Zechariah, which would put his ministry much later. What everyone does agree on in the book of Joel is this. It's about the day of the Lord. You see, there was a locust plague that had just happened among God's people, and Joel sees in the locust plague a glimpse of the future judgment or the day of the Lord that will come that will devastate because it brings the judgment of God for human sin. And so two times in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he gives us this vivid retelling of the recent locust plague that had taken place among God's people and how it actually points ahead to another day of judgment that they ought to be warned by. The day of the Lord. A day that will be far more devastating and all-encompassing than this locust plague that wiped everything out. So in light of this, he calls the people to repent, not of specific sins that they were doing, but, but sin in general, and gives them a picture of what true repentance before the Lord looks like. And so in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, he gives them this charge. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over the disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so he says, this is what real repentance looks like. It's, it's fasting and it's mourning, but it's actually a broken heart over your sin more than it is just tearing your garments. See, tearing your garments was a sign of repentance and grief over your sin, but what God was after was an internal heart that broke over their sin. And then he reassures them that God's character, God's very nature, when we repent like that, is to, is to turn toward us in mercy and forgiveness. In fact, that is his very name that he revealed in Exodus 36 when he said he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And so Joel invites the people in light of this devastating plague that has happened to repent and to turn to the Lord, and they do. They actually do. And God 
hits them with this incredible promise. The second half of Joel chapter 2 is the promise of restoration, and it finds its kind of climax in verses 25 to 27. God says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. So all the different locusts that came and just devastated. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and that there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. These are some pretty incredible promises, aren't they? If you ever struggle with regret and feel like you've wasted years, take a little time to meditate on verse 25 this week. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You can't restore time. Once it's passed, it's gone. And often that fills us with a deep sense of regret and sometimes even shame for how we spent our years. Many of us look back at our teen years and are filled with regret that we didn't pursue the Lord wholeheartedly, but all kinds of foolishness. Some of us look back at the early years in our family and we wish we had those years back because we would have done things so much differently. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten is an incredible promise, not just to the people of Israel who had their crops devastated, but I think to God's people, that God will not waste our years. He will redeem our suffering and restore it. Not only that, as the people eat their plenty as opposed to going hungry, this line is given twice at the end of 26 and the end of 27. God says, I will restore to you the year, oh, sorry, and my people, sorry, my people shall never again be put to shame. They had, it's an interesting promise, isn't it? See, the people of God, especially in Joel's day, had known their fair share of shame. This is not necessarily an individual sense of shame that we immediately go to when we think of that but rather a corporate sense of being God's people, but now no longer being your own masters, living under the oppression of a foreign government. See, as a people, they struggled with the corporate sense of shame. It felt like their glory years were behind them. See, they had heard story after story about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Samuel and David and Solomon. But those, those years seemed long gone. And they felt the shame deeply that they had been kicked out of the land. And now the restoration that they had to the land was, was but a shadow, just a speck of what it used to be. Now, we don't live in an honor-shame culture like they did, and so there's a lot of this that we're probably not going to get our mind around. But suffice it to say, their sense of corporate shame was probably crushing to them. And here now God promises, my people shall never again be put to shame. How? How is that shame going to be removed? And is that even true of human history? I mean, God's people from this time forward have had their sense of shame. I mean, if you think about Jewish history, both in the long ancient past, but even in modern history with the Holocaust and all of the current challenges they experience, no one would say that the Jewish people have had it easy. Now, they're still here, but they haven't had it easy. How can God promise here to take away their shame that they would never again be put to shame because it seems like human history says they have been put to shame. 
The answer to that has to do with the promise, I think, that's given in between these two promises that I will take away your shame. If you look at it in verse 27, he says, My people will never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am the Lord in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people will never again be put to shame. So the removal of their corporate sense of shame has to do with God, the Lord, Yahweh, once again being and dwelling in their midst. Now, how is that going to work? During the time of Haggai and Zechariah and probably this particular time, the focus and the energy of God's people was in reconstructing the temple so that God's glory and presence could once again dwell with them, could be near to them even though they were a sinful people. But here Joel promises a different kind of presence from the Lord. In verses 28 to 32, the promise that we're going to spend the rest of this morning looking at, it's the promise, one of the most incredible ones of the Old Testament, is that God's presence will be poured out on them. Let's read it together. Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved." For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord, on all flesh, young and old, men and women, even servants. Now to understand just how monumental this promise is. You need to know a little bit about how the Spirit of God dwelled on people in the Old Testament. See, God's Spirit was not absent in the Old Testament, but was far more selective in who He rested upon. See, God's Spirit would often rest upon an individual for a specific task that they were to carry out. This was usually a leader or a king, a prophet, or even a craftsman, but they would be empowered or blessed by God's Spirit to do a specific thing. For instance, to lead people with wisdom, God's Spirit was poured out on Moses. God's Spirit was poured out on King Solomon. Or to lead people into battle and armies, God's Spirit was poured out on Samson, who isn't exactly a great moral example to follow, or King David when he beat or defeated Goliath of Gath, or on Joshua when he led the armies of the people to to take possession of the land. Or often God's Spirit was, was poured out on a prophet so that they could prophesy to God's people what God said to them in that given moment. Whether it was Samuel or many of the prophets came after him. Or in the case of a guy by the name of Ohiliab and Bazil, their story is in Exodus chapter 31. They were craftsmen. And God's Spirit was poured out on them so that they could construct a beautiful beautiful tabernacle, a tent in which God's presence was actually going to live and dwell so they could make the Ark of the Covenant and all of the things that had to do with God's holy tabernacle. But the thing that's distinct about God's Spirit in the Old Testament is that it was always selective and it could be given or removed at any time. 
See, prophets couldn't prophesy whenever they want. It would come and it would go. God would reveal things, but they couldn't just speak on their own. Or leaders could have God's spirit and blessing removed from them because of their disobedience or their failure to obey God. For instance, uh, God removed his spirit from King Saul when Saul disobeyed in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and didn't offer things as sacrifices to the Lord. David, knowing full well what happened to his predecessor when he is caught in his sin and repents to God, says in Psalm 51, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, the reason he said that, the reason he prayed that is because it was a very real possibility that God's spirit would be withheld from him, would be taken from him, would, would no longer bless him. So in the Old Testament, we see God's spirit come and go, typically given to a leader for a very specific purpose, a king, a prophet, a craftsman. But what's being promised here in Joel chapter 2 is categorically different. Joel is promising that God's Spirit would be poured out on all of God's people. Now, one more story, because I think that would share a little bit of the longing that people had for this, even all the way back into the founding of their nation. In Numbers chapter 11, Moses is leading the people of God in the wilderness. And guess what they're doing? Grumbling, complaining. Yeah, pretty much Israelites, wilderness, all they do is complain. And this particular grumbling and complaining had to do with the food that they ate. No longer was God's manna sufficient for them. They wanted meat. And so they started grumbling and complaining. And even this, they started daydreaming about all the good food that they had back in Egypt. Where they were slaves. Where they cried out to God to deliver them. And now that he had, they keep longing for what they had. And so Moses, in a moment of exhaustion, says in verse 14 of chapter 11, I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Yeah. Like Moses made it way longer than I would have. And so God instructs him to set apart 70 elders, men of the people, to help share the load. And here's the story in Numbers 11, verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him, that's Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. Now those are some sweet names. If anybody's going to have a baby soon, maybe consider those, okay? Eldad and Medad. And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. So they were one of the two of the 70, but they didn't go to the tent of the meeting like the other 68 had. They were still in the camp, okay? And a young man, so they begin prophesying in the camp, and a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord Moses, stop them. You're probably wondering, why in the world are we listening to this weird story? Here's the payoff line. Verse 29, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders returned to the camp. So Joshua, Moses' assistant, is like, stop them. They're taking credit for, for what you're supposed to be doing. And Moses is like, Oh, don't be jealous for me. Wouldn't it be great if God poured out his spirit on all his people? 
so that all of his people could speak his word and have his spirit. Yes, Moses, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? This promise is hinted at in Ezekiel. We read it a few or a month or so ago when Ezekiel says, I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will pour out on them or put on them. And now here in Joel, it's elaborated on and explicitly promised. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So who gets the spirit? Everybody. All of God's people. Your sons and daughters, men and women, young men and young women, those who are on the bottom rungs of the social ladder, even on the male and female servants. Now, some Bible scholars think that this is a hint that the Spirit is going to be poured out on Gentiles as well. Uh, Maybe, Um, because a lot of times Gentiles were household servants in Jewish, Jewish people's homes. It could be. We know that that happened in the New Testament. I don't know if it's explicitly promised here. But he says the young people are going to be given visions and will be prophesying. They will speak the word of the Lord together. But it's not just the young people. The older people too. We read, your old men shall dream dreams. Now you know the spirit of God is at work when the older people in the congregation are not talking about the good old days that are long past, but dreaming new dreams, having new visions of what God might do in this generation. See, it's easy to get to a place where you think, I put in my time. I might just sit back and rest and let the young people handle it. And let me tell you, our culture is more than happy to just move older people aside. After all, we're one of the foolish cultures that doesn't revere age and wisdom. We tend to idolize youth and build everything around trying to extend and perpetuate it, including a lot of its foolishness. Don't hear me wrongly. I'm not against youth at all. In fact, i got a few of them that live in my home. Much of our work as a church has to do with engaging young people and showing them Jesus and connecting the dots for how the gospel of Jesus is the most relevant news in the world for them and can shape the rest of their life and their dreams. But hear me on this. I long to be a church where the older people continue to dream dreams too where they know in the core of their being that they're here for a reason. They're not dead yet. And that means God has work for them to do and dreams for them to dream and that God is working and moving in their midst and that their wisdom can overflow and that their dreams overflow and that sometimes they lead the charge. So if you're 60 plus, I am so glad that you're here. And sometimes churches think, oh, you know, the only thing that shows life is if there's young people around. Now, I get it. There's a lot of life when young people are around. I mean, just look at how this sanctuary turns into a track meet at the end of our services, right? And that's not the 60 plus, usually. I mean, we have a brand new baby in the back row. It's amazing. I love that. One of the great joys and privileges, I think, of the last five, six, seven years is that God has made us a church of all generations. And the wisdom and the life experience that our older members bring is incredible. And I want you to be encouraged. You're not dead yet. 
that means that you have an incredible role to play and spot to fill here. And that some of these things, you're going to lead the charge on. And you need to hear that. Because we often just marginalize those who are older when they have the most to give. Now, is that exactly what's being told here? No, I'm taking a little liberties. But notice how it's all people. Old, young, men, women, those with high social standing, those with the very bottom social standing, God's spirit is poured out on all. Now, do you catch the irony of the promise here given by Joel the prophet? Joel the prophet prophesies about a future day when the office of prophet will become obsolete. Isn't that interesting? What makes him special on this day as he speaks these words of promise will one day be commonplace among all of God's people where God's spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And I think like Moses, Joel can't wait for that day. Would it be that God's spirit was poured out on all and all could prophesy? Now this promise in Joel is quoted verbatim in Acts chapter 2. The first Christian sermon that was ever preached was on Joel 2. Isn't that interesting? The day that the Spirit came on Pentecost. So if you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, the day that the Spirit of God came and was poured out on Jesus' followers, there's 120 followers that are gathered in a prayer meeting on the day of Pentecost. Here's the story, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just fall on the 12 disciples or the leaders. It doesn't just fall on the men. It falls on all of the followers of Jesus who are gathered there. So they all began speaking in different tongues and languages. See, at the Feast of Pentecost, Jews from all over the world came and gathered in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this particular feast. Meaning that the native language for many of these people was not Hebrew or Aramaic, which was commonly spoken there. It wasn't even Greek. It was these other places that they had grown up and learning and living in that particular language. And so God's people, one of the evidence of the, of the Spirit is that they begin speaking and sharing the good news, but everybody hears it in their own native tongue. It's like a reversal of the Tower of Babel where the languages were scattered because God didn't want his people uniting in rebellion against him. Now he is uniting these languages so that they can all hear about Jesus and why it matters. It's incredible. It's a monumental move of God. And anytime God is moving in this particular way, there's often some people that step back and they mock. And some people are like, man, these people are drunk. It's crazy. And so Peter stands up and addresses the crowd that's beginning to gather in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and those who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Peter says, we're not crazy. It's only nine in the morning. We're not drunk. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. See if you remember these words. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verbatim. The promise that we just looked at in Joel. He goes on, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He is saying in part, the day of the Lord that Joel promised. The day of God's judgment has come, and it fell not on us, but it fell on Jesus. On the day of crucifixion, the sun was turned to darkness. On the day of resurrection, the earth shook in an earthquake. And now the promised Holy Spirit has fallen on all of his followers These are the last days, he says. God's Spirit has come, and we now proclaim the good news to you that Jesus died but is alive. He has been raised. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. He goes on in verse 32. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see in here today. It's all written in Joel and it's happening before your very eyes. Oh, to be there. Could you imagine? And he stands up and he says, today. Today. So what? As he closes his message in verse 36, he says this, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? You're right, we killed the Messiah. But God raised him up. What do we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. See, just as Joel promised in verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, which is where this scene is taking place, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So here we got, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but now among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So do we call on the name of the Lord, or does the Lord God call us? Yes. Both. Yes. God 
calls us and we call on him for salvation. And we see that very thing happen in verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people call on the name of the Lord Jesus and are saved because Jesus called them. Today, the call to you is the same, that that day is now, it's today, that the Lord has poured out his spirit like he promised in Joel, like he fulfilled on Pentecost, and like he does every single Sunday when God's people gather together and are scattered and spread throughout the world, that his spirit is poured out on his people. So what if you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then today's the day. I'm not going to manipulate you, but I'm going to declare to you the good news that Jesus, what he did, he didn't just do for people in general. He did it for you because you need a Savior, and he's the Savior. The life that you should have lived before God, you didn't. You failed. You didn't attain God's righteous standard. You're a sinner, fallen, in desperate need of a Savior. But Jesus' life and his resume could be credited to you today. How? By repenting of your sin and confessing that he is indeed Lord. Confessing that what he did, he did for you. See, he didn't just live the perfect life. He died as a substitute for you. He bore the wrath of God in your place so that by his blood you might be cleansed and forgiven of your sin. That all that Jesus did could be credited to you by faith. So repent of your sin and be baptized. Next week we're going to have an opportunity for baptism if God's stirring in either of you or any of you, I would love to talk with you about that. But make no mistake about it. The promise that was made in Joel, fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, is a game changer. Outside the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm not sure there's a bigger day in history than the day of Pentecost. In fact, you would never have heard about it apart from the Spirit come. The Holy Spirit is such a big deal that Jesus himself taught that it's actually better for him to leave so that the Spirit comes. See, as we head into this New Testament section of the Thread series, we intentionally picked some of the passages that deal with the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, we'll see that one of the Spirit's roles in our life is to do the kind of internal work that changes us from the inside out, as promised in Ezekiel that he convicts us of sin, that he illuminates the truth of the Bible so that we can understand what God has said, and that he empowers us to actually walk out of the darkness of sin and into the light of God's work, empowering us to live out of the new desires that we have in our new heart. We'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us to do the work of ministry. Just like in Acts 2, the work of ministry is not entrusted to just a select few, but all of Jesus' followers are empowered and gifted with the Holy Spirit, albeit differently, to do the work of God in our world. So men and women, young and old, rich and poor, those with lots of social standing, those with none, all empowered by the Spirit to do the work and all absolutely vital to see that the work gets done. That means you. And third, We'll see that unlike in the Old Testament, when God's Spirit came and went, that the Holy Spirit will become a fixture in the life of a believer and will keep us to the end, to seal us in Christ, to preserve us, to keep us in the faith so that we believe what we believe. I want to close 
this message was just three questions of application that I want to wrestle with together. The first is this. How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit in my life? It's a good question. Probably the most important one. Second, what would change about my life if I lived as if God's power was at work empowering me in the Holy Spirit? And third, what would change about our gatherings and interactions together if we believed that every follower of Jesus was indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and could speak the Word of God one to another? So, first of all, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Well, first, do you believe that Jesus is Lord and Messiah and Savior? If you believe that to be true, if you're trusting that, then you have the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't believe that otherwise. You would think that this is some kind of myth that meant to give uh, people a little bit of hope. But it's certainly not true. But if you believe it to be true and true for you, you wouldn't believe that apart from the Spirit opening your eyes to see Jesus, who he truly is. Not only that, but do you love God? Is there a hunger in you to know him more? That isn't a natural desire. That's a work of God's Spirit within you. What about this? Have you ever had a passage of Scripture just jump off the page and you knew without a shadow of a doubt that was for you? God was speaking it to you. Have you ever had God put someone on your mind at exactly the right time and that when you reached out to tell them, hey, I was thinking about you or I was praying for you, you realized that something monumental was happening in their life or they just needed encouragement in that moment? Has God ever used you to do something that was so beyond your own natural ability? These are evidences of the Spirit's work in our life. All of this promised in Joel, fulfilled in Jesus sending the Spirit, not to a select few, but to all who call on his name for salvation. If you are in Christ, then you have the Spirit. Now, there might be a lot of ways for you to grow in the Spirit's work and power, but if you love God and if you believe and trust in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit. That's a promise. Second, if that's true, what would change about my life if I lived as if God's power was empowering me? God's Spirit was empowering me. Well, you would try things that you wouldn't try on your own. You would put yourself in places and situations that if God didn't show up in power, you might look rather silly. But he does. Or how about this? When sharing the gospel with someone, how different is it if you feel all the pressure in the world to convince someone of the truth about Jesus versus you simply share what you know? The objective truth about his gospel and what he has done, the subjective reality of how he's transformed your life, and trusting the results to him. How much different are your conversations with people who don't know Jesus if you go into them assuming that the Holy Spirit's already at work? It takes a lot of the pressure off, doesn't it? And you know what? It makes us less weird. It does. We just talk to them like a normal person, like we would talk to our Christian friend. Now, we might assume that they don't understand all of the lingo that we have, and so we, we make it understandable, but we talk to people. See, the longer I walk with Jesus and the more I'm aware of the brokenness of our world, the more I long for my life to be defined, not just by my natural gifts and abilities, but by the supernatural power of God. Do you feel that? Here's a challenge for you. The next time someone pops into your head, don't just think about them and pray for them, but pray for them and then reach out to them. Give them a call or drop a text that says, hey, the Lord put you on my heart. I'm praying for you. How you doing? 
Now, it might simply be the regular run-of-the-mill encouragement, but more often than not, it will be the Holy Spirit working specifically through you in that moment to personally encourage someone, often at a time of great need of encouragement. Which I think leads to the third question. What would change about our community, our gatherings and our interactions with one another, if we believed that every follower of Jesus was indwelt by the Spirit of God and could speak the Word of God one to another? Have you ever been somewhere and someone shared with you something that you needed to hear, like exactly what you needed to hear in the exact moment you heard it? It's most likely the Spirit's work, not theirs. I can only dream about living in a community with people that attuned to the Spirit and that willing to share what God puts on their heart. Now, a caveat here. We don't walk up to people and say, thus says the Lord, or this is God's will for your life. That's akin to spiritual abuse. That, that gets really close, actually, to blaspheming and taking the Lord's name in vain, attributing to ourselves the weight that God's word and authority should have. And so when God subjectively leads, we don't speak like we speak when we say, this is what God's word says. In fact, we submit it to and, and we bring it, make sure that it's in alignment with what God has already revealed because why would God contradict himself? He doesn't do that. But if we feel like God has revealed something to us for another person, can you imagine going up and sharing in humility like this? Hey, I felt like the Lord wanted me to share this with you. It may be off, so test and discern to see if it's from him, but I felt like the Lord wanted you to know this. Guys, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is not a personal thing only, but a corporate thing. I've been in gatherings before where God has clearly sent messages of comfort and care to other people through his people. And it rarely has to do with predicting the future or telling someone what they should do, but more often than not has to do with God seeing sufferers, seeing people, knowing them, and reassuring them with a tangible sense of his presence and care in that moment that happened through somebody else. Because this is what happened. You come to the conclusion, God cares enough about me and what's going on in my life that he sent someone else my mail so that I wouldn't believe the lie that this was just you know, a figment of my own imagination, but that God actually would speak it through somebody else in a way to remind me tangibly of his presence and his reality. Because if you're anything like me, you go through seasons of doubt. Is this just craziness? Is this just my own internal, this is what I want to happen? But when God does that through someone else in exactly that moment, oh my goodness, does God feel near. And the truth about the gospel doesn't change, but it feels more present and more alive. Other times I've seen this operate when people become aware about maybe something that happened in someone else's life long ago that they weren't there for, they wouldn't have known any other way but brought to the present because God often wants to bring that into a person's life to, provide, to begin dealing with it and healing from it. Now, I'm not trying to get weird on you guys. I'm trying to help you see the supernatural work of God in and through his people in normal ways that some of us have gotten so scared of that we're closed off to. Now, there are often weird things and weird people at work, but that doesn't mean that we shut off the Holy Spirit any more than there's a lot of bad sermons out there, but we don't give up on preaching. Some of them I've even preached long ago. Maybe even last week, I don't know. Uh, doesn't mean we stop preaching the Bible, it means we get better at it. 
And that we all study and we discern, right? Or there's a lot of crooked people out there that will take money for those in need, given by God's people, in order to generously meet needs, but they use it to live in luxury themselves. That doesn't mean that we stop giving generously, does it, to people in need? It just means that we do it differently and we put safeguards in place so that that money gets distributed well. In the same way, the tangible work of the Spirit, through call it prophecy or words of revelation or knowledge, we don't squelch the Spirit, but we do test and discern and we share those things humbly. We don't say, thus says the Lord, as if God is speaking undoubtedly through us. But hey, I have this thought, this impression, this thing. Do you think it's from the Lord? Does that mean anything to you today? Do you see the difference? One is humble and submits to the testing and discerning of other people. One is just a power grab. I bring this up because deep down, I have the fear that someday we'll get so good at doing church and putting on programs that whether or not the Holy Spirit shows up in power, our machinery will just keep things moving forward. And I pray that that day will never be the case. I never want our gathering to simply be, oh yeah, that person's good at that, and that person's good at that, and they put it together and they administrate it nicely. I want to have a tangible sense of the supernatural work of God present in our midst. Not chasing signs and wonders, but being open that God might actually want to say something to us today. And he might actually use you and me to do it. That's a lot more exciting, isn't it? knowing that God has poured out his spirit not on a select few, but on all of us, and that we're to grow in our giftings and our ability to communicate these things to one another, that we might all be encouraged and built up and do the work that God has called us to do. The Holy Spirit, friends, changes everything. May we as a church always rely on and delight in God's active presence in our midst. Just as he promised in Joel, and he fulfilled in the early days of the church. May he do that again here. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it promises your spirit's presence and guidance in our life. God, we love you. and We want to see you glorified. So would you do that? Holy Spirit, we are open for you to share and talk even as we take communion now and as we sing now. God, would you minister to your people through your people? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.